It is such a delight to welcome you here this morning. I'm going to straighten up the table. We, I brought a very special guest with me to church this morning. And as you can see, Mackenzie Adams is back with us. Um, some of you know her from about a year ago. Um, she came and served in children's ministry and did just an incredible job. And we so appreciate her labor of love and just her investment in us and our investment in her. And um, I'm just so delighted with um, the mind God's given her and the heart God's given her and how, how that's going to be shaped for future ministry. But it is such a joy to have her come back. And I'm just going to have her to lead off this morning. And could you all please make welcome Mackenzie Adams. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys? Good, good. It's so good to be back in this house. My goodness. Um, yeah, my name is Kenzie. I had the privilege and honor of serving on staff with Stones Hill about, for about a year and a half, um, right after I graduated college. And that was a really, really shaping experience for me. That was where the Lord um, was just really kind of captivating my heart for a lot of things within the local church. Um, so I am super passionate about the local church. I believe in the local church. And during my time here, I just started feeling the stirring um, and the Lord just really calling me to start thinking about the global church. Um, and so I felt called to go out into the world um, and see what God is doing around the globe and his church all over the world. Um, so I got to go on this thing called the World Race. You can pull up the first slide. Um, and I went to six different countries over the course of 11 months this past year. So the first country was the Dominican Republic, so Guatemala. Yep, yeah, we'll just start right there. So we'll start with the DR. Um, so within each country, we usually moved around a little bit um, to different cities, different ministries. So there was a lot of various forms of ministry. Our first stop was in Harabakoa. Um, and this ministry exists to really bridge the gap um, between, there's a lot of racial tension between Dominicans and Haitians. Um, they live right next to each other on that island, and a lot of Haitians are fleeing to the DR for refuge right now. Um, just there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on in Haiti. So we got to serve and work with a lot of Haitian families. Um, you can go to the next slide. And so that just looked like um, getting led by a local Haitian pastor. You can see Pastor Job up here in that far corner. Um, and then over on the other side, those two guys, Christian and Woody, were our translators, and they were also Haitian. So um, they spoke Haitian Creole and would lead us around communities, um, help us share the gospel with some of these Haitian families. Um, we got to serve in some Haitian schools and try to teach English and Spanish, which obviously I'm not... That's not my first language, but I got to learn a lot. Um, and you can go to the next slide. Um, here's just some more pictures from the schools. Um, so it was really, really special. My heart just really broke for the Haitian people and um, saw God move in a lot of ways there in the DR through them. You can go to the next slide. Um, and then we moved to another city called Santiago. And what was really sweet is that we got to serve with this church um, that over on that far picture, you can see that's the pastor's wife. Her name is Amafri, and she's Dominican, and her husband is Haitian. And so just even within their marriage, they really represent the unity in the body of Christ, and their church um, really exists and has an emphasis on trying to bridge that gap, bring people together. So we got to work with their church, um, just another school effort um, with some Haitian students to try to help them have some education. You can go to the next slide. 
Um, there's some more pictures. That's their church right over there in the middle. Um, and I'll tell you what, most incredible experience of my life was being in that church worshiping when you have people singing in Spanish, Haitian Creole, which sounds like French, and English. And you want to know what heaven's going to be like? Just imagine gathering in a group of believers that look a lot different, speak a lot different, but are praying and singing to the same God. It's pretty incredible. Um, so you can go to the next slide. Um, then we moved on to Guatemala, and our first stop was in Antigua, which is a really um, big hub for tourism. And so while we were in Guatemala, or in Antigua, um, we were doing a lot of different organic ministry, um, just trying to prayer walk the streets, meeting as many people as we could and share the gospel with them. And there was just some cool God stuff that happened. That picture over um, on the far, you see a bunch of guys with cameras. This happened in pretty much every country we were in where they would see us. They definitely knew we were Westerners and they wanted to um, interview us on their national TV because we looked like tourists and we could give them a good review for their tourism. Um, so we had a lot of cool opportunities to share the gospel on live TV, which was awesome. You can go to the next slide. Um, then we moved to this place called Chichi Castanango in Guatemala. It was a small little mountain community um, where we got to serve with a pastor and his family. And this pastor is really passionate about the local police. You can see um, that far top picture. We're standing there with some police, and then in the bottom, we were having a meal with them. So we would have them over to our home a lot. Um, we would have meals with them. We would do Bible studies with them, basically just trying to encourage them in law enforcement um, because they don't get treated super well in Guatemala. And so we got to share the gospel with the police. We got to um, host little children's churches. You can kind of see some of those pictures up in the top. Um, we would go into schools and just put on um, a Bible study and, yeah, just trying to share the gospel in that small community where in Guatemala there's a lot of remains of um, ancient Mayan practices, so a lot of paganism, um, sacrifices, just a lot of darkness. And so Jesus and light is needed there. You can go to the next slide. Yeah, just there's some more pictures um, with Pastor Juan right in the middle over there. He was our, our pastor. But this is just a really quick, cool story. This picture over on the side is a group of all of the kids that we got to work with in this little um, mountain community. We got to take them to the zoo. I know that sounds like no small thing, but the pastor that we were serving with had had this dream um, that he would one day be able to raise enough money and take all these kids to the zoo because they've never even been out of this mountain community. Um, so just the whole process of renting a bus, driving four hours to Guatemala City, the money it takes to get them into a zoo, give them a meal, um, it was something that was going to be really far down the, look, down the line. And God just kind of captivated my heart, and I was like, man, that's a dream that we could totally see come to fruition. So because of the generosity of so many of you, um, and the Lord just provided some excess funds while I was fundraising last year, um, we were all able to sponsor a trip to the zoo for these kids. It cost about $1,200, and just because of the generosity and kindness of a lot of you guys, um, you should have seen the looks on their faces. It's imprinted on my mind forever. They will never forget that day. So um, that was a really, really cool God moment. You can go to the next one. Um, then we moved to Romania in the city of Craiova. Um, and I'll be brief on this one, but Romania honestly was my favorite country in terms of how deeply I was impacted by ministry there. Um, 
Craiova is a very, very spiritually heavy and dark place. Communism just fell 30 years ago, so a lot of the people um, just still kind of have this posture of, you just really have to earn their trust, and they're not really open to the gospel. Um, and so Romania and Albania, the other country that we went to, are literally in like the first generation of Christianity kind of taking its spread again. So a um, lot of stories, but let me tell you, God moved in Romania. Um, I saw light break through darkness. You can go to the next slide. Um, this is just a small example, but Eddie up in this picture right here, the Lord just introduced us one day. We started having a conversation. Um, his family is, um, uh, it, in Romania, there's a lot of, like, Christian Orthodox, but it's not really Jesus. It's a lot of law and tradition. So we started talking about that. He kind of believes in some of that stuff. They do some sacrifices and things. And so we had a really short conversation, but he was talking about how they usually, like, will sacrifice a lamb around Easter time. And that very morning, I took him to church, and the pastor was talking about Revelation and how Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And he, after church, came up to me. He was in tears. He broke down. He received the Lord. And the whole time I was in Romania, he and I would meet pretty much daily. Um, and I got to kind of disciple him. He still texts me, and he just got baptized in their church. And he's serving God. He feels called to ministry. So, yeah, God is on the move in Romania. Um, and then those other pictures kind of in the middle and at the bottom uh, got to do some kids ministry. And I'll tell you what, you want to talk about how amazing the Lord is preparing you for things you don't even know. When God brought me to Ligonier, Indiana to serve in children's ministry, there were so many things that I didn't know, had yet to learn. And God was so gracious to teach me things through children's ministry here that I got to kind of um, help give in places all over the world. So in those pictures, we're singing songs that we sang in Mountain Movers because those were the kids' favorite songs. So you guys' impact and the kids, like you guys are impacting the world in places that you don't even recognize because of um, your investment and me. The Lord is just trickling effect. So, and that's Pastor Raul and his wife, Anna, at the bottom. You can go to the next slide. Um, then we moved on to Albania. And this picture down there at the far right, um, God can sometimes use the crazy desires of our heart to bring some of his plans to fruition. I wanted to run a half marathon in another country because I thought that would be cool. Um, and so a teammate and I ran um, a half marathon and met some really cool Europeans through that. And word got out that we were Americans. And so this missionary couple walks up to us, tells us they're from America. They're missionaries in a city about 40 minutes away. God worked things out. We ended up moving and working with the missionary couple right there in the middle, Natalie and Freeman, um, and got to serve with them over the next few weeks. They just opened a student center, um, really trying to reach university students. And uh, yeah, again, the fall of communism and all of that, people's minds are just really not ready to receive the gospel. So getting to partner with these missionaries and try to encourage them um, because they're going to be on the field long term and see the fruit of what God is breaking ground in the first generation of Christianity. Um, you can go to the next slide. And then we went to um, Africa. So first country was Eswatini, little country landlocked inside of South Africa. Um, and we got to serve with what they call a care point. And um, basically, Eswatini has the highest rate of HIV and AIDS in the whole world. 
So a lot of these kids come from really broken homes. A lot of them don't have parents um, and need a lot of love. So we would go to this care point, basically just a big building, gather all the kids, play with them, just try to exude the love of Jesus. We can't even really speak in their language. Um, they speak Swazi, which has a lot of clicks, and I tried, and the kids laughed at me all the time. So <laughs> we just tried to demonstrate God's love through our actions, and uh, we would do Bible stories and have a translator kind of help us, and um, they usually only, they don't have obviously a lot of resources, so we would feed them a meal, and that was usually the one meal they would get fed a day. Um, you can see that picture over on that far side. Um, and let's go to the next slide. Yeah, here's some more pictures from Eswatini. Got to run another half marathon in Africa, which was pretty cool. And um, the, the older men that are standing next to me, they lived on the homestead that our team was living on. So I got to kind of meet them and connect with them that way. And that was how God just worked all throughout the year was like, I would meet people in the most random of ways, and it just really opened the door for gospel conversations. Um, there's some more of the kids from Eswatini. You can go to the next one. Yeah, some more kiddos. Um, next slide. So last country was South Africa, um, and we were in Johannesburg, which is kind of the gold mine of Africa, where a lot of people come for jobs, but then there's a lot of joblessness. So you have two contrasting sides of, like, there are parts of South Africa that are, have a lot of money, and you'll see a lot of, um, honestly, Americanism. And then you go to the outside, and there's just all these slums and a lot of poverty. Um, and sadly, there's this really sad statistic of baby dumping because a lot of young moms just feel like they don't have resources and options. So the ministry that we worked with did a lot with um, awareness about this and we got to go into some baby homes that they've established where they will rescue babies um, that they find in fields and all kinds of really sad stuff. So we got to love on babies um, and just try to encourage moms. Got to go into some schools and share the gospel. Um, in South Africa there is a lot of ancestor worship um, and so yeah again just a lot of paganism and um, we saw God do some pretty crazy stuff. So yeah, God is on the move in Africa. People got saved, and it definitely impacted me um, very deeply. You can go to the next slide. There's some more pictures of the babies um, and some of the kids that we got to work with in South Africa. You can go to the last slide. Um, so just to wrap it up, it's a whole year um, kind of packed in. There's a million stories and things that I could share, and I'm super happy to do that if any of you guys ever want to chat more. But um, I just wanted to end with this verse. The Lord gave me this last year while I was traveling as I was just thinking through what is the purpose? What is the point, you know, when Jesus left and gave us the Great Commission and now as believers, it's our job to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And I was just thinking about how in every country, in every people group, in every face and person that bears the image of God, as a believer, we have the ministry of reconciliation. Um, and God says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 21, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was recon reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that right there is the whole point. That's the reason. When we've trusted Christ, we've received the greatest gift of the gospel and freedom and being set free in Christ. We are now an ambassador of that reconciliation. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. And now we have this good news to take into all the world and say, you can be reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to people. All that's broken will be restored in God's perfect world. Um, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. This church, this community, this place will always hold an incredibly significant place in my heart. And I'll tell you what, I traveled all over the world last year. But there is no place like Ligonier, Indiana. And God impacted me so deeply during this season here um, and used and used and used so many of the things and the people and lessons that I had learned through this season all across the world. So you guys were a huge part of that. Um, I'm so thankful, and I love you guys. So be ambassadors. <laughs> Blessings. Thank you so much. Um, she has done a great work, and you have been a part of that. You have been a contributor and a supporter in that effort. And it's really the greatest job in the world to be able to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel is good news because it's been done for you and for me. And you have been saved this morning, you've been rescued. And now the privilege that you and I have and the invitation were extended is that we can believe that and live in light of it. And that's good news. So we don't come in an authority of our own. Um, we have no authority. It is in him, he, him who came and did the work of reconciliation. And we have the opportunity now of representing that message. And it's a challenging job, but it's the greatest job in the world. And I so appreciate this church partnering with McKinsey and others over the years to put people in position where they can proclaim this incredible gospel. And we're going to have people going, and uh, in this coming year, uh, another special trip, uh, not as long as a year, but there'll be some concentrated uh, days and weeks uh, dedicated to this. And so we just appreciate um, your prayer support and just your uh, living out this the value system. You know, we talk about a worldview church, and it's so important that we enhance our worldview and we expand it. And we do that by immersing ourselves in other cultures and learning, meeting people from different places and perspectives and then being able through those conversations um, to be a, a powerful witness and testimony of God's grace in those. So thank you, thank you, Mackenzie. Well done. I think probably the best um, gospel bracelet presentation I've ever heard, uh, Mackenzie Adams did it right from this stage. And uh, I still remember that. You did a fantastic job where you just go through the colors on a bracelet. And the colors represent so much. And I'm not sure that, I'm sure you probably in, did versions of that on the, on the uh, trail somewhere on the road. Um, but um, just did a fantastic job. It is good news. And that's our goal and that's our mission. Uh, really, uh, it ties into the sermon series we've started here a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, you did a great job last week at a Biblical Worldview Weekend. When those kids sang up here, I sat down here. And thank you so much for this, the setup and the breakdown. And the food service team did excellent. The tech team uh, accommodated our speaker. Um, you were so welcoming and inviting. Our speaker was so glad. to. He was so impressed with you. 
Um, he, very few venues are set up where you have breakfast and lunch while you listen to a speaker, and he loved that. Um, so you guys made that happen. Thank you, thank you. And then while the kids were singing their song, I sat by him, and I could just kind of hear this low-grade chuckle. Not, it, it, he was so enjoying it so much and just seeing how we're just speaking the worth of Jesus the, the, the fact that we're made in the image of God, we're speaking that over the young generation so they can be raised in a church that's reminding them of this often and how important that is. And he just had to smile on his face as he just listened to those, your kids and your sons and daughters sing, sing um, about God's ownership over their life and their body. So well done. I'm so encouraged with that. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me because uh, one of the helpers that came over from a local church not far from here, um, he said that he's been trying to get Bruce Malone in his church for years, and they will not allow him to come and speak because the pastoral staff can't agree on the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. Think about that. Think about that, how major that is. Well, we are committed to the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. You lose that, you lose so much more because everything's embedded in those 11 chapters about life and gender and marriage and family and all the things that are important. You can't lose Genesis 1 through 11. We will always hold to the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. It happened. It happened. And now, in light of that, what is God saying to us and teaching us through it? Not every church commits themselves to that. And so it's just interesting to me. I hear this from time to time. I hear from some of your college students who share with me, thank you for being a church that's oriented to helping people understand that set of assumptions that lie behind everything that we say we believe and how we live and what we prioritize in our life, that set of assumptions, okay? We live out what we really believe and we, we're addressing those assumptions about where we came from, what went wrong, what God's doing to fix it, how suffering gets resolved eventually. Those major key worldview questions, every belief system's got to answer them and we are dedicated to helping you answer those questions in a way that honors God that's biblically accurate okay we're committed to that we're committed to it and, and and it's so important because if you want to love Jesus listen to me church if you want to love Jesus you want to love the book that shaped him okay if you want to love Jesus and get to know Jesus and the nuance of who Jesus is and really walk with him and, and know what he was about. Know the worldview that shaped Jesus. Know the Old Testament. The first two-thirds of the Bible is the book that shaped Jesus. It's the book that gave us Jesus. And so in loving and knowing and exploring these questions and exploring even the Old Testament, that's the book he memorized. That's the book he quoted. That's the book he lived. That's the book he says, I've come to fulfill. If you want to know Jesus, you're really serious about that. You're going to be serious about knowing the book that shaped him, okay? What was the book that shaped Jesus' worldview? What were Jesus' assumptions about those questions? And you see it. You see? See how it ties together? That we're that kind of church. You are that kind of body. This, this is distinctive moving forward. We're not just waiting until conversion and then discipling people. We're discipling people before they ever get converted. Why? Because we've thought these questions. We've thought the thoughts. We understand the bigger picture things of what's going on in the world. Okay? And so we're having these discussions with our kids. Sometimes we've got to keep this in mind. I thought I was going to preach on Jonah this morning. Okay. Where are we at? All right. 
So uh, we've got to keep this in mind, okay? We think, I want to go do something significant in the world, right? I want to go do something great in the world. I want to have high impact in the world. I want to be remembered. I want my, my name etched in places. I want, I, I want these possessions. I want these go accomplishments. I want these credentials and degrees. I want this kind of family and marriage. I want this kind of portfolio, okay? So we, we think about all these things and how we're going to leave our mark in the world, okay? I want you to, again, I, I want you to rethink it. I want you to rethink it in these terms, your significant contribution in life may not be those things. It may not be what you acquire or the goal that you achieve. It may be someone you raise. It may be your great accomplishment in life. It may be someone you raise, someone you've invested in, someone you've cherished, someone that you've, you've had these you've discipled, that you've loved, that you've walked through the, the hard things of life with. So let's stop thinking about these great achievements that we want to do in the world. Let's think about maybe the people God has entrusted to us. Maybe we live with them. Maybe we go to church with them. And they're precious. And they're worth our time and energy and effort. This is a beautiful thing. And that's what we're committed to. That's what we, you are who we love. And, uh, and we want Jesus to shape us. And we want to be not just isolated uh, beliefs here and there. We want full big picture schema. We want, to see, we want to see the big picture. All the way from creation to restoration, resolution at the end of history. We want to see that. And we want to see how we fit in that. And we want to nudge this purpose of God. This, we want to be the kingdom outpost here in this community where we represent that big meta-narrative, that bigger story that we're inviting people up into to live their life by. And, and such that if there's baby dumping, we step in to rescue the baby. Amazing. Baby dumping. I thought that was a first century deal. Still going on in cultures and countries of the world. So, so God has called us to find those areas of need to irrigate those broken places in the culture, then you can do that. We can do that together. And that's the invitation, and that's the privilege, and that's the prerogative that we have. And we are committed to that, 100% committed to that. You know, uh, it really does tie into the Jonah series, and that is that I remember back in Bible college, and there's so many things rushing through your mind, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're trying to figure this stuff out and you're growing and you're praising God for that. And, but there's something that I read in one of my textbooks and then uh, professors and things would talk about these things as well. And one of the statements that just keeps coming back to me is that Jonah, the book of Jonah, is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. What is John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. And I've thought about that all these years. And as I kind of pulled out all my Jonah resources and trying to uh, just to get, prepare myself for this series and uh, think about that, that, that phrase, that statement about Jonah being the John 3.16 of the Old Testament comes back to me again because this is not just a prophet that God asked to go and share the gospel and a message of repentance. Okay, 
from his own country, from within the boundaries of his own country. This is a God who comes to a prophet named Jonah and son, son of Amittai, all right? And he asked this prophet, I want you to give a message. I've prepared this culture for you, this Assyrian culture, a Assyrian culture. I have prepared them. I have sent a two plagues. I, there's been an eclipse, and we see this from extra biblical historical places. I've, I've got them ready, Jonah. I just need you to go step into that culture and proclaim my word. And Jonah was like, yeah, I, I've received your word. Yeah, I can proclaim your word. But he had a problem. What stuck in Jonah's agenda and, and his picture of how this should go, this, this hyper-nationalist who loved his country, who couldn't fathom that God would be merciful to an Assyrian nation that had all kinds of problems of cruelty and, and issues with other countries and what they've done with people and how they viewed other people and what they did to other people. And I've referenced that in previous message. Jonah, who, who understands the word of the Lord, who loves to proclaim the repent, but this is the problem. This is the thing that stuck with him. This is the thing that he struggled with. Not, that, not just that it's an Assyrian people, but God says in 40 days. Nineveh will be overthrown. And Jonah didn't like it. Because that means God might be merciful. And I don't want him to be. Because I am a Hebrew. That's what he said. In fact, the very first time that Jonah, we have a direct quote from Jonah appears in our text today. Okay? Very first time we have a direct quote from him. He wrote the book of Jonah, but the very first time he says something in this text. Uh, if you would, uh, would you pull up for me Jonah chapter 1, and uh, we'll just make, come in around about uh, verse 9, if you would, for me this morning. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 9, okay? The very first time that Jonah Speaks, a direct quote. He doesn't say, well, I'm made in the image of God. God made me, and I'm, I have my identity in God. I'm made in his image. I love God. He loves me. I'm his servant, right? I'm here, and I have value because of, of these things. No, no. What does Jonah say the very first thing? He says, I am a Hebrew. Okay? What's he saying? I'm a nationalist. This is who I am. If anybody threatens that, then I'm not, I'm not playing that game. I'm sorry, God. You can find you somebody else to go deliver this message because the, you know, the, the destruction message, I can proclaim the 40 days part, no go, because I kind of sense what's going to happen. I don't want to be a part of it. Okay? And so... The very first time Jonah speaks, he's going he's gonna to talk about this. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at that. In fact, we'll just go ahead and, and open up the text here this morning. Uh, go back, if you would, to verse 4. Uh, we dealt with the verse, first three verses of, um, of Jonah already. And then we'll read through it's verses 4 through 16 that we're going to be looking at here this morning. Uh, so I just want you to look at this, and I want to set this up because not only does Jonah reveal the issue that he had in his heart, the thing that kept him from 
uh, obeying God and, and walking with God, the, the, the thing that he was running from, okay, not only was it a hyper-nationalistic view of himself and of his country and of his world, right, but he also does something right in this uh, chapter. And so Jonah, who does so many things wrong in the book of Jonah, the four chapters of Jonah, he does something right, and that is he proclaims the gospel, all right? He gives us a picture, a pointer to the gospel, and you'll see it in just a moment. And so uh, he, is, he is pursuing a, a life without God at this point. You know this, how this goes per a couple of weeks ago. But here's the irony of this, and that is that he, as he is pursuing a different path that God called him to, he is also being pursued. And so there's these footfalls behind Jonah right? Have you ever ran from God? Have you ever chosen to go to Tarshish and God said, I want you to go Nineveh? And you say, no, I'm not going that direction. I'm going to go to Tarshish, right? And so you start, you take your run and here you go. And then the thing is, he's running from God and there's footsteps of God behind him. God's not going to let him go, right? And not only do we, uh, are we like Jonah in that uh, we are running from God, but we also learn, ironically enough, that God is the great pursuer, and the one doing the pursuing is actually the one that you long for and that you crave. And iron- ironically and strangely enough, the, he's the one we're running from, but he's the one all while in our heart of hearts that we long for and we, and we want to connect with. And that's the irony of Jonah's story. That's the irony of your story and my story. So God is a great pursuer, and the one doing the pursuing is actually the object of our longing. And we see this in Jonah's story. We see it. God loves Jonah. He calls him. He works with him. Jonah says, I resign. I'm not going to be a prophet anymore. God says, okay, I'm not going to accept the resignation, and you're going to see why in just a moment. God loves Assyria. God loves the sailors. God made the earth, the animals, the plants. You see this in the story of Jonah. God controls the wind. He controls the roll of the dice. We're going to read that in just a moment in the text. God speaks and communicates through prophets, through sacrifice, through the word, through his presence. God utilizes all of the above to tell you that he loves you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. And there's something in us that wants a God that can transcend the storms. There's something in us that wants a God that loves us in our wayward pursuits and that will not refuse. He will not give up. He will track you down. You can run, but you can't hide. Are you running this morning? If so, what are you running from? And could I challenge your assumption this morning that what you're running from and who you're running from is actually who you're craving? It's who you're wanting. It's who you're longing for. Well, we see this in Jonah. Then the Lord sent, uh, slide number 11, the Lord sent a great wind on the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord sent it, or the word is he threw it. He hurled it, some translations have. And he's conveying to us something important. Uh, It's the speed of the storm. It's the size of the storm. It's the intensity of the storm. It's not a normal storm. It's a supernatural storm. And so these experienced sailors, they know how to predict bad weather. And they never saw this one coming. And so the Lord 
hurls it, and the word hurled is used like four different times. You've got the, the, the storm being hurled. You've got stuff being hurled out of the boat. You've got Jonah being hurled into the sea or cast or sent into the sea. It's the same root word. So you, this is kind of a key word in the whole passage, that God sends a storm. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. So this thing is so bad that Jonah personifies the ship, and the ship is thinking, I can't do this anymore, right? It's threatening, as a human would, it's threatening to break up. These waves are beating on me. I can't hold it together much longer. This ship is, as it were, it's sinking. My rudder's damaged. I can't guide this thing. I'm, the, I'm at the mercy of the waves. You ever felt like that? Jonah personifies the ship, and the ship has these thoughts, and that's what the ship is thinking if it was a human. That's just how bad the storm was. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, very pluralistic age. They're crying out to their own God because in their worldview, the gods must be angry, and there's a plethora of gods, and one of them's ticked off. So let's all just start calling out to our pluralistic uh, pantheon of gods. And let's see if we can't appease one of them so this storm will subside and we'll spare our lives. The gods must be angry. That's their view. And they, and they threw the cargo, the precious metals and expensive resins, they threw it into the sea to lighten the ship and whoever ships something via this boat, I hope they purchased insurance. Just saying. Otherwise, it's a loss. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And I don't know about you, but I've slept through some pretty wicked storms. Wake up the next morning, I see tree branches, you know, in the yard. It's like, wow, how did I sleep through that? Well, when you've been through a lot processed a lot in your mind you can rest in a deep sleep I don't know if he had time on all pms in him but he definitely was in a deep sleep and it's a word that uh, has an allusion back to Adam when God put Adam to sleep if you do the word study of it that's where he, that's where Jonah was he was in a deep sleep just like Adam in the garden when God did surgery right He's in this deep sleep he's stressed he, he's resigned his prophetic office. He's saying no to God. He's spent, he, he's taken all of his money out of the bank. He's chartered this boat. <coughs> and he has just given himself to this Tarshish run. He's going to run the opposite direction of the, the way God had, had for him to go. And it exhausted him. And that, nothing will exhaust you like running from God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're tired. Well, uh, you're going to see here, there's just no other way to do this other than surrender to God. All right? You'll see it here as we go. The captain went to him and said, verse 6, how can you sleep? I love the old King, old King James Version here. What meanest thou, O sleeper? <laughs> what meanest thou, sleepyhead? Come on, dude. We're all struggling against the, uh, the oars and the sails, and we're trying to button those up and get our ship ready for this thing. We want to survive this. And you're down here, the howling of the winds doesn't wake you, the, the timber straining, the shouting of the mariners, nothing aroused him out of his sleep. Get up, get up, call on your God, Jonah. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. 
Then the sailors, slide number 12, the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Here's how that worked. You had two dice. You had a dark side and a light side. You go to one person. Sebastian, is it you? If you rolled the dice, you had a, you had a, a dark side up and a light side up on the dice. That was no. Uh, uh, Amir, is it you? Roll the dice. They rolled the dice, okay? If you had two blacks, it's a no. Two darks is a no. Two whites is a yes. A white and a dark was a draw. Roll again, okay? They went around in that storm. They went around, and they rolled their dice. They cast their lots. They rolled the dice. Sebastian, nope, it's not him. Uh, Amir, not him, around the circle they go, and they get to Jonah, and they roll the dice, and what did they get? They got two whites on the first roll. And they all just kind of like, okay, dude, you're the man. Not only does God control fish or sea creatures, not only does he control wind and waves, not only does he control ships and oars, not only does he control plants, not not only does he control um, all of these uh, different um, supernatural interventions here throughout the book of Jonah, he controls the roll of the dice. He, the free will roll of the dice, God says, I'm at work even there, Okay. And it comes up, Jonah, two whites, what's up? Verse 8 on the screen, they ask him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. They start peppering him with questions, question after question. And so they come at him, okay, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And so it's an indication of the tension on board of the boat. Uh, It's a a modern-day equivalent of, okay, show us your driver's license, show us your your Social Security card, show us your passport and the stamps. I want you to show it. We want to know who you are and what's your context. And, And the assumption now is that Jonah must have done something really bad, so here comes the barrage of questions. And they don't even give him time to answer. And so they're trying to figure out as soon as possible what deity Jonah has offended so they can possibly do something to stop this storm. They want to know. And so it's interesting because uh, when you look at this, these are all identity questions that they ask here in verse 8. They want to essentially, they're, they're asking three questions. They want to know his purpose. What's your mission, Jonah? They want to know his place. From where do you come? What is your country? They want to know his ethnicity. Who are your people? And to ask about your purpose, your place, your people, it's an insightful way of asking, who are you, Jonah? Who do you, who do you belong to? And, and furthermore, whose are you? What God are you serving or supposedly serving? And that might be potentially ticked off with all of us, and we may lose our lives because of you. And so they're trying to understand what tribe Jonah was affiliated with, so they might ascertain what deity was offended, and that what they potentially could do to appease the said deity. Now, I want you to notice something very important as you work your way through the story, and that is... In verse 8, 
I want you to notice after this barrage of questions, what question does Jonah answer first? Okay? Jonah is saying the thing that gives me my identity, the thing that really gives me my sense of value, the thing that I have my whole life wrapped up in, it's not that I'm pleasing to God or that God is great or God loves me, right? It's none of those things. What question does Jonah answer first after the list of four or five questions? The last question. From what people are you? You see that? From what people are you? You see, Jonah is a successful leader He's a successful, of a, of a successful nation at this time, his nation of Israel. And if anything goes wrong with that, he's like, I won't have a self left. It has to, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. He was a hyper-nationalist, and John 3.16 just kind of stuck in his throat. He's like, I can't do it. I just can't, do, I can't see a God and serve a God who's going to be merciful and loving to people I can't stand. And he's a hyper-nationalist. And so he answers, verse 9, the first question he answers is the last one in the list. And he answers that question about where, uh, the question is, from what people are you? And he answers, verse 9, here it is, I am a Hebrew. I'm not from the people of Israel. He doesn't say it that way. He uses the word that's rarely used in the Old Testament for people of Israel. He's not just a Jewish person. He's a hyper-nationalist kind of Jewish person. And he says, I worship the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And though the question about ethnicity and nationality comes late in the list, from what people are you, Jonah answers it first. And in a text that is so sparing and sparse of direct quotations from Jonah, it is significant that he reverses the order and he puts his ethnicity and racial identity out at the front of the most, as his, as his, uh, uh, the front of the most essential identity question he could answer. You see that? Since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. Question, what is your source of identity? What is the thing that defines you? And if God touches it, it's like, no. That's, you, can't do, you can't ask me to do that. I'm not doing that. I'm not accepting the gender you make. I, I'm not accepting. I, I, I can't let you touch that. That's mine. Uh, you can't touch my things, my possessions, my, the things I own. I, th- that's, me, that's who I am. If I don't have that, I don't have a self left. What is your question that you're going to answer first when under a barrage of questions? What's your source of identity? Okay? Jonah, this was it. This was his source of identity. This was his sore spot. Uh, Jonah had already, slide number five, if you would. Jonah had already delivered 
a, a rather famous prophecy which had been fulfilled as the northern kingdom of Israel regained some of its lost territory. It had been shaved off. The borders had been shaved. The boundaries of the nation had been shaved and shaved off. And then look what we, uh, slide number 22 if you would. Look what we read in 2 Kings chapter 14 verses 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, to the Dead Sea in accordance with, note this, with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, they actually pronounce that, Yonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath, Heifer. You see this? Jo- Jonah, or Yonah, told Jeroboam II, listen guy, you've got to fortify the northern border against your enemies. And he did, and, and that, that prophecy came true. And so there was economic stability. There was nationwide prosperity. Um, this allowed Israel to, uh, to control the, the important trade routes that ran through Israel. And so it was a time of material prosperity. Jonah was respected because of this. He was popular He was greatly appreciated. He was handsomely paid. He's a political champion in the land. Jonah said, fortify the border. We did it. We grew. We were successful. He was quite the nationalist. And God now is telling Jonah to do something for another country that might threaten all of that. And this hyper-nationalist, Jonah tried to hide from God in this hyper-nationalistic worldview that he had said, I'm not going to obey God. This is more important to me than obeying you and proclaiming your word to a nation that needs to hear it. There's so many things we could say right here on this, on this point, and perhaps I will circle back to it uh, when it comes to the, there's a lot of nationalism uh, conversation happening. Christian nationalism is something that's, and just pull that slide up for me if you would. You've got a lot of this discussion going on now, but essentially this is a sloppy phrase. It's commonly used in today's culture in a derogatory manner toward those who are patriotic and love their country. So typically you're going to see that discussion that in that, with that perspective in the secular culture, okay? That's how that, the, the, the conversation, people want to frame that conversation, and I'm just going to say to you now, and I'm going to come back to it later because I want to, I want to hasten to get to the thing that Jonah does right in this chapter. It's so important that we see it. I just want to say to you that it's so important uh, that we love our country and keep it strong and contend for the faith in the public square. It's so important that we do that, that we protect life, that we value liberty, and that we uphold the family. Um, a strong sense of national identity is so important because otherwise you, have, you are fodder for the globalists who will move in and will take control. So you have to have a strong sense of national identity and a love for your country. Nevertheless, don't worship your country. You can't put, you can't put a flag in Jesus' one hand and a political party symbol in the other hand. 
that's nationalistic. And that's, and that's an inappropriate priority for a follower of Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? You, it's important to love our country, but we can't put national flags in the hand of Jesus and political emblems in the hands of Jesus and make Jesus the one who's espousing these things. He loves all nations. He loves all people. Uh, but the gospel is foremost. It's the, it's the central identifier in the life of a Christ follower. And so it's important that we understand and that we get that. And, and, and the kind of nationalism that people want to talk about uh, uh, where you, where you, you know, put a nation's flag in Jesus' hand or a political party emblem in, in uh, Jesus' other hand, it's a dangerous, hyper-nationalistic view of life, and it's antithetical to the gospel. Now, when we talk about nationalism, it doesn't mean that you can't hold a public office unless you're a, a believer or you sign off on a distinctively Christian beliefs, okay? It doesn't mean that. If, if you don't believe in the Trinity, that does, you shouldn't have to serve six years in jail for not believing the Trinity. You see that? That's what Christian nationalism is. That's not what, that's not what the, the, the Bible would espouse or what anybody in the Christian community espouses that I know of. But that, yet that's what the culture wants to make it out to be, okay? So... It's important not to reject the truth or disobey God based on political alliance that you have where your political viewpoints are contradicting God's word. There are times when civil disobedience is necessary. There's times you've got to break with your political family because they are contradicting a higher law in the word of God. That was Jonah's problem. He couldn't break with it. To proclaim a message of repentance to people who lived in a way he didn't think was right. Who viewed life in a way he didn't think was right. And see, the word is a higher calling. We must engage in the defense of and support of principles that honor God and one another. You see. And so this does not mean that you can't hold a public office unless you're a Christian or you sign off on distinctively Christian beliefs. I mean, personally, I'd prefer that you were a Christ follower. But if you're not, it doesn't necessarily mean you're disqualified from office. And if you're voted in, you can still do a lot of good because you're made in the image of God. I wasn't going to talk about this today, but since I'm here, and i got to give what the text gives us. This was Jonah's problem. It's our problem today for some people. But I want to say this. By refusing to follow Christ, the King of Kings, then you as a public servant, you concede ground to the God of this age who will exploit your rule on some level because there's no such thing as neutral ground. And so while you don't follow the King of Kings and while you do serve in political office, and it doesn't necessarily disqualify you from that, you can still do good because you're made in the image of God. Your rule and your tenure will be exploited by the evil one because there is no neutral ground in our world. When government goes bad, we mustn't flee it. We mustn't abandon it. 
A bad government doesn't mean that Christians are called to set up an alternative government. Rather, we work to redeem it from within to fulfill our calling. And all the while understanding that while we work and we vote to make things better, we can't put all of our hope in a political figure. And quite honestly, if I were to be honest with you this morning, I feel at times politically homeless. Politically homeless. But what are some warning signs that a healthy patriotism is morphing into idolatrous nationalism? C.S. Lewis helps us here. What he says, he says, one sign is when your ethnicity becomes more fundamental to your identity than your faith in God. Jonah knew that if Nineveh repented and received mercy, it might be bad for his nation. And so he put his national interests ahead of the Ninevites who needed to hear the truth of God. And that is to make your love for and service to your race, your ethnicity, even making your love and service to your nation more important than your love for and service to God. That's dangerous. A second sign is when you start to whitewash your nation's history and when you won't admit the bad things maybe your nation has been involved with, then you're in danger of beginning to feel superior to other peoples that, that you can justify cruelty. C.S. Lewis says that's two things you've got to watch. You're probably not going to meet anybody more patriotic than I am. I love my country. I've got boys that serve in the military. I love a strong America. In fact, I absolutely love what John Piper has said, and I, I love his take on this. He said that we are citizens of heaven, but we can have affection and love for our earthly home. And he warned about loving our home too much in a way that hurts other people and compromises the gospel. But he says there's nothing wrong with loving our homes in the country that we're from. He says it gets harmful when we love it so much that we don't see its faults. And I thought that makes a lot of sense to me and that Christians can be patriotic. We just remember, we just remember that where our citizenship ultimately is and we can have patriotism with our eyes wide open. Because after all... Uh, God does, through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 29, he does command us to seek the welfare of the city in which we find ourselves. So our passage today is one that's not as remotely removed from life as we are doing it right here in our nation today. Jonah fled from his calling, and one of the primary reasons he fled from his calling was because he was putting something ahead of his service to God. And that happened to be his country. So love your country, keep it strong. Contend for a faith in the public square. Make it easy and honorable to live a God-honoring life. Fight for God-bestowed identity. Uphold masculinity. Affirm femininity. Assist on, 
insist on respecting the two genders that God has made. Protect life. Protect the rights of a, of a child to their biological parents. Value liberty. Support the laws that protect women. Uphold heterosexual families. If you don't have a strong sense of national identity, again, you are fodder for the globalists who want to control the world. God is not anti-nations. He's not anti-patriotic. He wants you to love your country, but he wants you to be, get your identity from a uh, the, uphold, uh, the upper, left, upper shelf priority of life, and that is, God, I am who you say I am. My allegiance is to you first and foremost. I will follow you and love you and serve you. I will not serve a political party. I will not serve a political candidate. I will not serve uh, under any other allegiances greater than that primary allegiance. so important that we get this right I'm not sure what happens in 2024 but it's so important that we get this right When we pick this up, after Jonah, <clears throat> after we see this in the text and where he's mentioned here, and we see what Jonah's core values are, we can pick it back up in slide number 13, verse 10. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the face of the Lord because he had already told them so. And maybe I'll just end on this today and I'll come back to this, this uh, passage next week. But when you run away from God and you disobey God, you're not just doing it all on your own. You're going to take other people with you. Jonah was meant to be a blessing to his nation and the other nations of the world. But everybody's life is harder because of Jonah's disobedience. Lives were in danger. People were losing money that they shipped this stuff on the ship. A ship was about to break up. Sailors are about to drown. He's supposed to be a blessing. And everybody's life is tanking while he sleeps in the bow of the ship. We never disobey just in isolation. We take other people with us. Now, can God work through our rebellion and our disobedience? Can he work through that? He can. Because next week, we're going to learn something. And that is that God is actually going to see these guys, these sailors, pagan sailors, calling out to the pluralistic pantheon of gods, are going to come to know Jonah's God based on what happens in this second part of this message on Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. We're out of time this morning. A lot of information. But I want you to think about, are you on the run this morning? Are you getting your identity in something other than who God says you are and what God says you are?
you know, um, back to our proposition this morning, God is the great pursuer, and the one doing the pursuing is actually the object of our longing. What we think we're going to find in all these other identity markers of life, are gonna, we're going to pull up empty. And when it, you pull up empty and you realize, oh, wait a second, God's been pursuing me through these things all my life. He's been pursuing me. He's been after me. And if I might come to him and find in him this new life, this new beginning, and that's exactly what had to happen in the life of uh, Francis Thompson. Slide number 30, if you would, for me. I'll close with this. Francis Thompson was known for the piece that he's written called The Hound of Heaven. And uh, it was a, a poem that he wrote in, uh, well, he lived from 1859 to 1907, and he wrote this uh, in London. And he, he, uh, he's an English poet, and when he wrote it, The Hound of Heaven, this piece, everybody understood that hunting was a popular thing in Thompson's time. And so everybody in England understood what he was saying. Like, like a rabbit flushed from his hiding place, Thompson darted from one refuge to another as the hound of heaven hotly pursued him. And so Thomas did not mean any disrespect toward God as the hound of heaven. Rather, he just wanted to convey how persistent God is when he's after us. And so God eventually corners Thompson, but not before a lot of running away. And the poem he writes is, a, is an autobi autobiographical poem, and it's about an attempted evasion of those divine footsteps behind him that Thomas had heard all of his life. And, and the, the, the thing starts, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the archers of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And so goes this incredible poem that... Uh, Francis Thompson wrote. It's an autobiographical poem. I think, I think it's not just his story. It's our story. It's Jonah's story. He's fleeing. You know, Jonah's fleeing to his nationalism. He's fleeing to Tarshish. He's fleeing to this life without God in it. He's trying to find this identity in, in these other things. And that was Thompson's story. He was born in a respected family in England. And he was a son of a doctor, a book-loving mother. He was educated in college and after college he went on to graduate school he wanted to study medicine his parents wanted him to study medicine so he tried being a, a, a doctor and he tried being a priest and he tried being a soldier and he tried all of these things in life and he and he just kept coming up empty every time and and he failed his his uh, medical boards like three different times and so he finds himself on the streets of London and he was an addict an opium addict and because his, he had access to those drugs, as his father was a doctor, and, and it's what he would do to try to induce his creativity. And so he would do opium, and he was addicted to opium, and, and uh, uh, he lived on the streets. He took a number of jobs. He failed at those jobs, and he, he, he found starvation, and he found filth, and he found the dirt slums of, of London, and he ran into disease and sleeping on the banks of the Thames River with London's homeless, selling matches just to stay alive. He even unsuccessfully tried to take his life. He was rescued by a prostitute, and she, she uh, allowed him to live 
with her with with her and to and to feed him and to nurse him back to health and and then a, a Christian family discovered and his poetry and they helped begin to publish his poetry and the main, the Maynell family watched over Thompson placing him under a doctor's care and sending him to a monastery in Sussex where he was temporarily free from his addiction and he started writing poetry again he would relapse from time to time recovery didn't seem to last very long in 1907 he relapsed one final time he lost his life with a condition complicated by tuberculosis and he lost his life at the age of 48 November 13th a team of about four people adapted his old English phrasing to represent his thoughts this autobiographical poem and it kind of reads like this and so I fled I fled I chose the surest methods and swiftest means I fled I sought refuge in forbidden pleasures and tried to drown out the footsteps beneath, beneath the clamor of the train. The train catered to my every desire. The train is, a, is a, his life history. Images sped past me, a kaleidoscope of all I hungered for, tantalizing me with more to want and guaranteeing unceasing ecstasy. But the more each stop promised, the greater the letdown and the louder my cravings became. Nothing had fled, nothing I had fled to, to had ever provided the comfort that I sought. Gradually, he hears the growing sound, the beat of footsteps, the footsteps down the street, the footsteps on the sidewalk, the footsteps outside the door, the footsteps coming, slowly but surely, he realizes that there's a presence coming, there's footsteps coming, he was coming, he was the one I had heard about, he was coming for me. And the more I fed my desires, he says, the more they consumed me. Each declared it was worth any price, and the cost was everything I had. On and on I fled, and on and on his relentless pursuit. I sensed his devotion to me was great, but I feared its power. I was afraid if I opened my heart, he would rush in, and I would be allowed nothing, nothing of my own. And he says, so I turned from every urge to look his way and hide my face, hoping he would not notice me. And finally, after running till he could run no more, Thompson falls in defeat, and he hears the voice which asks, which of those you fled to loved you? Though you would not see it, I am the one you have been seeking all of your life. You're being pursued this morning. You're being pursued and the greatest form-changing event in history happened at the incarnation when the Son of God takes on human form to, and this time permanently, to continue the pursuit of you. King Guy writes, once they have seen him in the stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what length he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of you. Are you stowed away on some Tarshish-bound ship this morning? You're fleeing those ever-faithful, 
but yet diligent footsteps. We're trying to find an identity in so many other things. And you've come up empty. To use the words of Francis Thompson, an opium addict who died of TB and other related things, is telling you this morning, and Jonah the prophet trying to tell you this morning, the hound of heaven is on your trail. You can run, but you can't hide. I'll pick it back up for part two in this chapter next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for just uh, the challenging word from your truth. Thank you for what you reveal. It shows us so much. It, it lays our heart open. And I ask and pray here this morning that you would not just be a thing in our life. You would be the main thing in our life. We understand we can take an identity in a lot of things. It's easy to do that. But this morning, we want you to be the bestower of identities. You are the one that tells us who we are. And you give us value and worth. And it doesn't matter where we're from, what country we live in, what family we hail from, what language we speak, what the color of our skin is. As we've heard this morning, the gospel has gone around the world in a year's period of time, and that's a beautiful thing. It transcends cultural barriers. And we understand you're a John 3.16 kind of God, and, and Lord, thank you that you transcend all these barriers that we have to fight through here. So, Lord, help us to get this and get this right that we can truly be biblical worldview people who live in the world, who serve in the world, who will not serve our political party because that's what mommy and daddy was, a party that is antithetical to all the things you hold dear. May we never do that. And may we never, may we never put in the hands of Jesus those emblems that try to put up more walls of division. And then, Lord, we also pray here this morning that we would be a people who love our country, who love our community, who pray for our leaders, who engage in the process. And, and while we hope for Christ-centered followers serving in places of government, we understand that's not, that doesn't always happen, and that's a struggle for some of us. But we know that you're at work and you can do things beyond what we can do. And may we do the very best we can because it may not be some great goal we accomplish in life. It may be someone that we raise that may be our contribution. Someone that we raise that serves wherever, whether it's government or in the community or other vocations, that serve with a biblical worldview, that are not that not just Christian this and Christian that, but they're people who are Christian in their values. And they live that out boldly and courageously in the world. And so we love you, Lord, and we understand that our country is built on Christian principles and the Judeo-Christian ethic, and we are so thankful for that. 
And if loving and not murdering and not raping and not stealing, if that's Christian nationalism, then sign me up. Because that's your word. And we have to stand on that. But this morning, what I'm talking about is much bigger than just that. We understand that you have used our country in the world to do incredible things. And we're thankful for that. And we want you to continue to use it. And I know we don't replace Israel. And I, I just pray that you would help us to be uh, a country that you can use to be a blessing to the world. I pray you would help us to be this. And then I also ask and pray that we would honor you and that we would not allow the wicked one to exploit the rulership and reign by refusing to bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And maybe this morning that's exactly what needs to happen. Maybe here this morning someone needs to surrender their political stances. Maybe here this morning someone needs to have the boldness and the courage to let God be God and let him call the shots in their worldview. That's what we want. That's what I want. That you would be Lord. And this morning, before I'm a citizen or any other identity marker that may be, or label that may be attached to me, I am a Christ follower. And there is nothing that surpasses that. I am made in your image and I belong to you. And that's my calling, regardless if my nation does it or not. Regardless if my political candidate does it or not. That's my calling. And that's my allegiance and that's my loyalty and nothing can surpass or replace that. We see this in Jonah and we'll see it some more. So Lord, thank you. Guide us here this morning, direct us in the years and the months and, and the years ahead. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? You've been a great group. Have a great day. Come back next week. I'm going to show you one of the most loving things Jonah does in the book of Jonah. All right? You'll see it next week. All the stuff he does bad, he finally does something good. Come next week to see what it is.